If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. These are not the remains of Benjamin Franklin. The remains of Benjamin Franklin are in Christchurch Burial Ground in Philadelphia. These are, though, human bones. That was George Goodwin discussing a rather unusual exhibit on location at the Benjamin Franklin House in London. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of February 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For this week's episode, I paid a visit to London and specifically to 26 Craven Street, which for 16 years in the mid-18th century was home to Benjamin Franklin. Now a Franklin Museum, the house seemed like an appropriate setting to interview this week's guest, historian George Goodwin. George is the author of a new book that focuses on Benjamin Franklin's time in London. It reveals how the future American founding father was once a keen Anglophile, who for years sought to keep the colonies within the British sphere. And that seeming contradiction was one of the topics I was keen to bring up during my conversation with George. And do listen out later on in the interview for a little musical interlude with one of Franklin's inventions, as well as an explanation of those mysterious bones you heard about in the opening clip. Okay, so George, so here we are actually in Benjamin Franklin's house in the centre of London, not far from Charing Cross. Franklin, we all know, is one of the founding fathers of the United States of America. So why are we sitting in London talking about him and not in Philadelphia or New York? Well, he came to London three times in his life. He originally came here as a a youthful apprentice printer. And um, at the age of 18 in 1724 on, on Christmas Eve, and he he was actually hoping that he would establish a a printing business back in America with the lieutenant governor of the time. So he came over here to actually buy a printing press. But when he got over here, he found that the promises of the governor were completely fraudulent and he had to to work his way out of this very difficult situation. He started, therefore, 
as a printing apprentice here. And he had a skill. This was the great thing, that he had a skill so um, he could immediately get work and set up in lodgings in Little Britain, which was the, the centre of the, of the printing trade. And it was where the, uh, the Daily Courant, which was the first daily newspaper ever uh, created in Britain, uh, that was where it started. And also where um, Joseph Addison and uh, Captain Richard Steele's Spectator was printed there as well, again by William Buckley. And uh, so it's like a spiritual home for him. He worked in, uh, in London for 18 months. Uh, he was quite a, a perky teenager, so that, for instance, he, he didn't worry about approaching Sir Hans Sloane, who was a great collector at the time, and of course, whose, um, whose collection became the foundation of the British Museum, to sell him an asbestos purse. And you think, well, this is rather rather strange thing for the, and rather cheeky for this young man to do. But the purse is there. It's still in the, the Natural History Museum, and it's kind of proof that when he wrote his autobiography, Franklin did exaggerate a bit, but not completely. Now, when he went back to America, he was so impressed by his time in Britain that he founded all kinds of institutions in America, such as the Library Company, the American Philosophical Society, which is still there today on British lines. He made a fortune as a printer and uh, then set up in public service and in 1757, as the representative of Pennsylvania, he was sent back to London to negotiate with the Penn proprietors of Pennsylvania to try and get them to pay taxes. As I said earlier, Franklin, well known as being an American founding father, but when he comes back to London, he's not at this point in any way American revolutionary, is he? Would it be fair to say he's still something of a British patriot? Oh, completely and utterly. I mean, for, for four-fifths of his, his long life, and bearing in mind he was born in 1706 and he died in 1790, he was a British patriot. He was a British patriot right up to March 1775 when he was forced to flee the country. In um, 1754, as part of his public service, he was one of the delegates sent from, from Pennsylvania to the Congress of Albany. Now, the idea of this was that against the threat of the French from the, from the north and the west, they were going to have a sort of um, a flexible union of the states purely for defence purposes. And he thought he was a driving force of this. He thought it was a brilliant idea. And... His justification for it was that he said that he regarded the colonies as so many counties gained to Great Britain. He had this dream of a great British empire of North America. And it was based on, on the principle that um, people would go to, uh, to America as colonists. And it was completely different to London. People would come to London from the countryside and they would die, which would keep the population down. Whereas they went to, uh, to America, they would have sort of 10 or 12 children who would survive in the healthy outdoors. And um, his view was that the population of America would double every 25 years. And soon, America would actually be a greater in terms of population than Britain. And what he wanted was he actually wanted Britain to have the benefit of that. When Franklin comes to back to, to say his second spell, his, his main spell in, in London, at what point does he actually live in this house that we're sitting in? Well, almost immediately 
Almost immediately in 1757, he comes here to Craven Street, and uh, being a sort of cautious man, he takes a meal with the landlady, Mrs. Stevenson, before he commits himself. Um, and obviously the meal went very well because he only stayed in the hotel in which he'd arrived in, in, in London for a couple of days before moving in here. And he moved in here with his son, William, who was his secretary. Uh, and there was a story because later on, uh, William would become uh, what he was called the most dangerous man in America. And that was by the Patriots because he was actually the, uh, one of the commanding loyalist figure, completely splitting from his father during the American War of Independence. But at this stage, 1757, he was a young man. And they came here with their two slaves, and they set up, um, they set up home here with, with Mrs. Stevenson. And people came and went, including William and the, the two slaves. It's likely that later on, um, Franklin actually employed servants rather than slaves, but there's no sort of... Um, Definite proof of that in the in the um, the Yale collection of, of Franklin's papers, but you know here he stayed with a brief interregnum, if you like, when he went back to uh, Philadelphia for eighteen months between seventeen sixty two and seventeen sixty four. He stayed here for all his time in London. That, that's really interesting, actually, what you just said about how he he brought two slaves over. I mean, their legal status in England would have been very different to how it would be in the colonies. I mean, how how did that work? Well, not quite. Uh, in, um, in 1757, I mean, this was way before the, the Lord Mansfield case of the, the runaway slave, the, the James Somerset case of the, the runaway slave, uh, the question of whether he was treated as property or not. In 1757, uh, they were property. Now, as it happens, uh, he had two slaves. Uh, Williams was called King and... Um, Ben's was called Peter. King did a runner, and uh, he was eventually found in Suffolk with a, a retired teacher lady who was um, teaching King to play various musical instruments. And actually, the Franklins tracked him down, and they thought, actually, King's really having quite a nice life here. And they were compassionate, and they left him with the, the teacher. And it's... An interesting question, uh, Franklin and slavery, because actually one could argue quite a lot of his uh, fortune as a printer was made on advertisements in his paper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, advertisements for the recovery of runaway slaves. But by the end of his life, he was a great abolitionist, and he worked actually with Josiah Wedgwood to create the famous medal with the slave in chains and the, uh, the motto underneath, am I not your brother? Am I not indeed your brother? Uh, so equivocal on slavery. And this house, I mean, it's clearly not furnished now as it would have been in his day, but it's still quite a, a grand house in what I'd imagine would even then have been a desirable part of London. So does this show Franklin's status already at this stage when he's come to London? It certainly does, because it is, it is a... You know, it is a very good... You could say it's like a sort of merchant's house in London. It's very well positioned for Franklin because it is close to Spring Gardens, which has now, now disappeared. It's actually just a, a, a part, a sort of corner of Trafalgar Square. Uh, it's very close... And Spring Gardens was important because that's where Thomas Penn, with whom he was negotiating, lived. Um, it was very close to, um, to Whitehall, 
and to Parliament. Uh, so that was good as a representative. Uh, it wasn't far away from the new development uh, to the west of London. Uh, we're talking, obviously, of the area of Belgravia, where the aristocracy lived. And, of course, he was on very good terms with them through their in joint interest in science. And he was, of course, close to the city and the city institutions. He was close to the post office because he was deputy postmaster for America. So that's where he would go to, to report. So he was really in the centre of, of not only his own life, but actually of London's life. And he mixed in quite elevated circles during his time here. Absolutely. Because of the, the science, and I think this is the point to, um, to explain that when he retired as a printer, he not only set up in, in public service, but he started experimenting with science, with electricity. And this totally and utterly absorbed him. In fact, he wrote to his great friend Peter Collinson, the botanist, uh, over, who was over here, and was a great supporter of Franklin, uh, to say that this had absorbed him more than anything else in his life. And he would spend hours with his electrical experiments. He would actually do uh, tricks that he would pass electric currents. Uh, he actually, on one occasion, he was demonstrating how to kill a turkey with electricity on the principle that, um, that the turkeys would actually taste more tender with the electrical current through them. But unfortunately, he didn't actually concentrate. So he put the electric current through himself. And uh, it was a blinding flash and a shock. So quick, in fact, that he didn't really see the blinding flash. Uh, and when he woke up, he had the, you know, it wasn't the turkey with the tenderized breastbone, it was him. And actually, he was quite lucky to survive that. He was rather more cautious after that. However, he published his, um, his theories based on his experiments uh, in uh, the experiments and observations of elect on electricity. And uh, this was a complete groundbreaker. Uh, he won the equivalent of the Nobel Prize of the time, the Copley Medal, and he was uh, elected a Fellow of the Royal Society. And his, his fame was, sort of, was not just across the Atlantic, it spread across Europe. I mean, Immanuel Kant called him the Prometheus of modern times. So when he came to London, he was a great celebrity. He was, in fact, the most celebrated American to live in London when he was here. And when he arrived in the 1750s, what, what is the situation at this point in the relationship between Britain and the colonies? It's, it's clearly not yet at the stage of revolution. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, in 1757, we're in the early stages of the Seven Years' War. Uh, things are actually not going too well for Britain at this point. But, you know, all efforts are really uh, focused uh, on, on, on the Seven Years' War. In terms of his own role here, his own role was totally and utterly specific. He was a representative of the Assembly of Pennsylvania, over here to try and get uh, Thomas Penn, the main proprietor of Pennsylvania. And by proprietor, I mean that he owned the land of Pennsylvania, uh, the colony that his father, William Penn, had set up as a, as a Quaker, but a tolerant uh, religious uh, colony. Thomas Penn was sort of, if you like, the, the leading one of the, of the surviving sons and um, he converted to the Church of England 
for social respectability. So you actually have this conflict between uh, the now Church of England pen and the Quaker pens. And also, he was an absent, absentee landlord. All he was really interested in was, was making money. He wasn't at all keen to pay taxes. And Franklin was sent over here to try and persuade him. They had a, an early meeting. It didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. And relations between Franklin and Penn rapidly deteriorated, uh, which left Franklin with actually quite a lot of time on his hands, to be, to be quite frank about it. Uh, and he had the most wonderful time. He would go to meetings of the Royal Society uh, every, uh, you know, once a fortnight on a Thursday, he would uh, join in the Royal Society Dining Club, and they dined very well. And then on the other, you know, the alternate Thursday, uh, he would join his club of honest Whigs, which were of, sort of mainly sort of um, dissenting clergyman types. Uh, and but some some and scientists. I mean, both groups had scientists uh, and philosophers, natural philosophers, as uh, as their membership. And they had a wonderful time talking about experiments, talking about philosophy. He was a member of the Society of Arts, now the Royal Society of Arts, and that was another group that actually helped to fill his, if you like, his, his dining table at, at various um, taverns uh, around Fleet Street. The Georgian Vulture actually still survives. The, the, the Mitre Tavern doesn't, but... Uh, so that would be fun, and he would go to, to bookshops and he would meet people like Boswell. Uh, he was a great friend of uh, William Strawn, a very, very great friend of William Strawn, uh, Dr. Johnson's um, uh, printer. And uh, but, uh, Franklin, I think, and Dr. Johnson only met uh, once that we can, uh, we can discover. And actually, this does bring us back to the, the slavery point. It was a meeting of a society for the promotion of uh, Negro education. Negro, obviously, the term uh, used at the time, in which they both had a great interest. Uh, Johnson, of course, because of his own servant, Francis Barber, was black. But we really don't know whether anything more than a few pleasantries were, uh, were uh, exchanged. And there was a reason why uh, Strawn didn't bring Franklin and uh, Johnson together, because Johnson had a very, very bad reputation of rounding on Strawn's guests. There was an appalling incident which led to Adam Smith fleeing out into the night. So uh, that was probably a wise move as far as Strawn was concerned. So at what point do relations between Britain and the American colonies begin to break down? And, and what does this mean for Franklin? Well, Franklin went back, as I said, went back to um, Philadelphia in 1762, because effectively what had happened is that the Privy Council had come up to a, a compromise with, with the Pens and with Franklin representing the Assembly of Pennsylvania, whereby the Pens would sort of pay taxes, but they had the ability to levy their own, you know, to decide what the taxes on their property might be. So it really wasn't very, um, very suitable. Um, he went back to, um, to Philadelphia and he was sent back here to London in 1764 because he'd actually convinced uh, the majority in the Assembly that the only solution to the pen problem would be to turn 
Pennsylvania into a royal colony. So if you like, at this stage, he was going for an even more British solution than uh, Pennsylvania had. 1764 uh, was obviously a year after the Seven Years' War had ended. It had been a triumph in the end. It had been disastrous to begin with, but William Pitt the Elder, Earl of Chatham, had taken over the war effort and he had done a most brilliant job. A very difficult man, a dictatorial man, but in those circumstances, Britain had brilliantly defeated the French, not only in North America, but in the West Indies and also in India. The only problem was, of course, it had cost a tremendous amount of money. And in 1764, the, uh, the incoming Prime Minister, uh, George Grenville, who really sort of approached matters in the, with the approach of an accountant, decided that it was time to get uh, the Americans to pay for the occupying... Uh, well, it wasn't occupying, for the protecting uh, British troops in America, protecting them against the French. Now, in service of things, this might seem completely reasonable. I mean, the British had had spent an absolute fortune uh, on the war. The national debt had gone up exponentially. But the problem was that Grenville uh, brought in a stamp tax. Now, say, you know, stamp tax, introduce a stamp tax to the Americans, well, you know, That's not going to affect life very much, is it? Well, yes, it did, because, in fact, it was a a tax on everyday living, because you needed a stamp for everything. You needed a stamp. uh, As today, if you were selling your house, uh, there was a stamp tax on newspapers, which actually wasn't very clever, because, as you can imagine, the newspapers rallied public opinion against it. There was a stamp tax on wedding certificates, any kind of certificate on graduation certificates, anything that really could be stamped was. Playing cards were stamped. But actually, that wasn't the point. The whole point of American organised American resistance, which united the colonies in a way that, that Franklin's Albany plan couldn't. I mean, the Albany plan completely founded the colonies. The colonies were not at all interested, or their assemblies were not at all interested in uniting with each other, thanks very much. They were more interested in fighting each other to gain the lands to their west for their own colony. But amazingly, the Stamp Tax, the Stamp Act, united the colonies on their assemblies against the British, and the mob took over. They started burning down houses of the stamp collectors. And the reason for this opposition was because it was the role of the assemblies to introduce a tax within the colonies. And it was in their charters. And this had been completely ignored by Grenville. Grenville's uh, government fell. It wasn't because they took massive interest in what was happening in America. It was actually because he had annoyed the king, the new young king, George III, by lecturing him at every possible opportunity. And also, very stupidly, not allowing a £20,000 expenditure to buy land um, next to Buckingham Palace, or Buckingham House as it was then. And this was bought by speculators with the very reason that they could build rather tall houses which could overlook 
the king and his children in the garden. So uh, Grenville was dispensed with and the Marquis of Rockingham came in. And uh, he was much more, or rather his, um, he and his supporters were much more sensible about matters, were more pro-American, and they could see the problem. So um, they introduced a committee, it sounds like today, doesn't it? You know, an investigative committee of the whole House of Commons. Um, and Franklin was brought as the star witness before it. And what hasn't really been, until, until the editors of the Franklin Papers went through all the, the questions and worked out the, uh, the questioners, uh, hasn't really been um, realised before, is it was a complete put-up job. I mean, Franklin was great mates with Gray Cooper, who was the Undersecretary to the Treasury. And, uh, in fact, Gray Cooper, we know, was here in, uh, in Franklin House, listening to Benjamin Franklin giving a recital on his own invention, the glass harmonica, which I think we'll, we'll have a, a hear of, or certainly a look at later. Um, and so there was Franklin as the star witness, and actually it's 250 years, almost to the day ago. It was on the 13th of February, uh, 1766, that he appeared. And Rockingham said to Strong that Franklin's contribution had actually been decisive, that it had got, the, um, it got Parliament behind the idea of, um, of abolishing the, uh, the stamp tax. However, there was a little fly in the ointment. The fly in the ointment was, in order to maintain his parliamentary majority, Rockingham had to introduce another act, which was the Declaratory Act. Now, the Declaratory Act, bearing in mind all that I've said about the ludicrous thing about the Stamp Act being introduced as a tax from Parliament, when the assemblies were the people who taxed people in America, the Declaratory Act declared the right for Parliament to introduce taxation into America. Now, you would think that actually this would be immediately rumbled as a complete disaster. The reason, of course, why Rockingham did this was because it was the only way that he could secure his majority. However, there was a kind of a, um, an unwritten agreement. There had been a declaratory, a similar declaratory act over Ireland, but it had never, ever been enforced. So it was kind of like a sop to the backbenchers. And Franklin, for one, was, uh, was convinced that this was fine. In fact, he said so uh, in his testimony. He mentioned uh, Ireland and the fact that it had never been enforced. However, as Sam Goldwyn said, an unwritten agreement is not worth the paper it's not written on. And when there was a change of government the, the next year, uh, and Charles Townsend, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, introduced his Townsend duties, effectively the Declaratory Act was enforced. Franklin, of course, was, was very disappointed by this. He tried to sort of excuse it because, you know, he was desperate, desperate to hold the empire together. He tried to excuse it by saying, well, you know, it's, um, it's not an internal tax, it's an ex external tax on the in introduction of glass paper, paint, and, uh, and tea. So, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. 
But actually, at this point, he was beginning to think, we have a real major problem here, because the British don't really seem to, to care about the potential of America. What they seem to be more interested in in Parliament is you have several different factions vying for power, and that they will do anything they can to bring down the existing government in order to grab power for themselves. So that he was sort of started to write to friends saying, you know, I rather despair of what might happen. And I'm not actually worried so much for America, because America has this vast potential. But I am worried for Britain. And I think Britain will be, will be the great loser. So at this stage, one has to think of Franklin as being a great chess grandmaster. Franklin was fascinated by chess. He, would, he had a travelling chess set, which actually you can still see in the Frank, Franklin Museum in, in Philadelphia, uh, which he would take on holiday with him and his chum, Sir John Pringle, who was president of the Royal Society. And he thought of this, of this problem really in the manner of a grandmaster playing several tables simultaneously. He wanted to have this solution. He wanted to have the the British Empire of North America. However, he also wanted the Americans to have a form of self-government. According, you know, on their colonial basis, he certainly wasn't thinking of, you know, a firm United States-style confederation. He also had another grand scheme. Because things had gone sort of awry with the, the plan to get a royal government of uh, the colony of Pennsylvania and edge the, the pens out uh, because he'd fallen foul of the Secretary of State, Lord Hillsborough, who had said he'd sort of encouraged Franklin and then had slammed the door on him. The reason being that he was Secretary of State for, uh, for the American colonies, but Hillsborough actually didn't really want the idea of more royal government in America and more colonisation because he was a great uh, landowner in Ulster and he was frightened that the plantation system was going to break down. But that, that's an aside. Franklin had a third string to his bow, which was actually to be a founder of a new colony so that he was going to depart Pennsylvania and he was going to be the founder of a new colony on the Ohio Valley. So he had all these three things uh, going simultaneously, almost on the basis that he hoped that one of them, one of them would succeed. And you could say that he sort of more than doubled up in terms of supporting the American side in terms of their self-government, because he became not only the representative of uh, Pennsylvania, the Assembly of Pennsylvania, but also he took on um, New Jersey, where his, actually, incidentally, his son had become the royal governor. He'd been able to, uh, Franklin's influence had been such that he'd been able to get his son in as the royal governor of New Jersey. There had been a slight problem when it had been found that uh, William was uh, illegitimate, but actually that was too late in the game, so he was able to get him over there. But he also, Franklin also took on Georgia, and he took on Massachusetts, which was, after all, it was the colony of his birth. He'd been born in Boston. He'd moved to, to Philadelphia at the age of 16. And he took on Massachusetts, 
and therein lay the problem. As, as things sort of go, begin to go further awry, at what point is Franklin forced to take sides and to take sides with the colonies? This is the amazing thing. In the end, he didn't finally take sides. He didn't become this fierce American patriot. Uh, in fact, the, the fiercest patriot was certainly one of the fiercest that they had. And, and the second most effective in getting America's independence or gaining America's independence uh, because he went to France as their as their, their ambassador and got the French into the war. But I'm slightly sort of moving on. It wasn't until 1775 he was desperately negotiating. From um, the time he took on Massachusetts in 1768, relations got worse and worse and worse, partly through the intervention of Hillsborough, who sent troops because there was a disturbance after the Townsend duties, and you got into this escalating cycle where, in fact, uh, Burke said that uh, the problem was that the colonies had come to the conclusion that uh, the Britain meant to oppress them. And Britain had come to the conclusion that the colonies had decided to rebel. And there was actually no way around this. We got into this, this cycle. And again, there was a British political element here. There was no, I keep on talking about all these different prime ministers coming in. There was no political stability until the, the Duke of Grafton, uh, towards the end of his prime ministership, in sort of 1769, he'd been prime minister since 1768, he actually got in a whole load of anti-American ministers to, in, in order to secure majority in Parliament. Because the way that Parliament was turning was more and more and more anti-American. And then Lord North came in in 1770. And Lord North has been painted as this, this you know, man who directed policy, was determined to uh, bring the Americans to heel. But in fact, uh, he was a prisoner of the anti-Americans in his own cabinet. He tried to resign. He couldn't resign because he emotionally relied on George III. George III kept on appealing to him, please, please stay, you, you are the guarantor of stability of government, and Lord North stayed in power. All this time, more anti-American measures were being, were being passed, and Franklin now openly became a member of the British political opposition, of factions under Rockingham and under Chatham, who sought to get back into government, but they couldn't win a majority in Parliament. And Franklin was acting with them openly, and he was being seen as a, a member of the opposition. In fact, in one way, you could say that Franklin actually made things rather worse. He leaked some letters from the Massachusetts governor, uh, Thomas Hutchinson, saying that Hutchinson, well, the way that they were, they were represented was that Hutchinson actually really wanted to curtail all freedoms of the assembly. And when these were leaked, these made matters far worse in America. 
Franklin had actually said, uh, oh, please, you know, these are for your eyes only to just a few people in the assembly. But I think we're back to, the, uh, to Franklin's own words, one of his great aphorisms, I think his greatest, that uh, three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. This was leaked, and it was found out that, uh, that Franklin was the, um, was the perpetrator of this, and he was arraigned before the, the Privy Council, and he had a strip torn off him by the Solicitor General Alexander Wedderburn. What hasn't been noticed, though, was that his two um, defending, Franklin's two defending lawyers were the chief lawyers of the Rockingham and Chatham factions. And a number of American historians, that is, historians of America, have um, said that this was, and it was in early 1774, this was the moment when Franklin rejected Britain, that he was now determined to become an American patriot. But it's just not the case. Franklin was uh, still trying to negotiate right up to March 1775. He was hardly an outcast. He was still going to the Royal Society and the Royal Society clubs, and he was still mixing with, uh, with politicians here, but obviously with the opposition politicians. However, it came to a crisis in early 1775, when the Earl of Chatham, William Pitt had become Earl of Chatham, um, sat down here in Craven Street with Franklin. In fact, uh, Franklin was actually rather proud of the fact. Uh, Franklin didn't really sort of uh, do humility when it came to his own achievements. He was, as I'm actually sitting in his room, so I suppose I ought to be careful because I might be struck by one of Franklin's lightning bolts but, uh, yes, he, he, could, uh, he was quite happy to boast away on occasions, particularly to his, in letters to his son, William. Uh, but he was very proud that Chatham's carriage, uh, or coach rather, was outside in the street as they, as they tried to come up with a solution to the problem. And they actually thought, they seriously thought, uh, in February uh, 1775, that Chatham could present a solution to the House of Lords and that the Lords would support it. Such had been his success as the great war leader in the Seven Years' War. Unfortunately, he had become Prime Minister briefly in the mid-1760s and had let everybody down. Well, I mean, is it right to say he let everybody down? The poor chap suffered from, uh, from appalling depression and really just couldn't manage anything. But anyway, he still thought he had the luster uh, to bring off a settlement. And he was really just shouted down. Uh, he was treated with absolutely no respect at all. And at that moment, Franklin realised that the, that the situation was hopeless. And uh, he stayed on for another month until March. And in fact, the day before he left in March 1775, he was, he was sitting in these same rooms in tears as he read the the Boston newspapers and the newspapers from Massachusetts in general with his great friend Joseph Priestley. Uh, and he, he was in tears because um, he saw the support of all the towns around uh, for Boston, which was, you know, it was under military occupation. The harbour was closed, trade was cut off. And the extraordinary thing is that, you know, Boston had a, a tiny population 
uh, in relation to the rest of the colonies. It was the most radical place in the colonies, yet it was British oppression which had driven all the colonies behind it. And it is extraordinary. Franklin had offered this great opportunity which had been rejected. In fact, Franklin really had, he was suspected by some, and in fact, uh, a great enemy of him was the Dean of Gloucester, Josiah Tucker, who uh, in pamphlets said, you know, this evil man, what he really wants to do is that he wants to move the capital of Britain over the other side of the Atlantic. And uh, Franklin was told this by the Earl of Shelburne, to whom, who was again a great opposition figure, uh, to whom he actually grew quite close. And um, again, Franklin wrote to William and said he was rather pleased to hear it. Franklin was actually keen on, on this idea. It's, um, and he didn't actually give it up. Even after the end of the American War of Independence, he wrote from Philadelphia to his great friend William Strawn, and he said he had a suggestion for him, which he told to tell nobody. Don't tell anybody about this. He said, you'll think that my suggestion smells too much of Madeira, of which they were both very fond, rather when we get to the second bottle. And he said, why don't you dispense with that silly old constitution of yours? And why doesn't Britain send delegates to Congress? So Franklin, he asked to leave in the 1770s, but I mean, by this stage, he was, he'd lived in London a long time, he had a great affinity with a lot of British political figures. Why was it that he didn't actually become a British loyalist? Why did he throw in his lot with the revolution? He threw his lot in with the, with the patriots because of his belief in the rights of the assemblies of the colonies to set their own laws and taxes. Um, you know, the phrase, uh, no taxation without representation, has been misrepresented. Um, it actually came from James Otis of Boston, who basically said, taxation without representation is tyranny. What it really meant was uh, that you should, Parliament should not tax us because we are not represented in Parliament. We have our own assemblies and we, it is our own assemblies who pass the legislation. And he sided with, um, with the patriots because in the end he could see what, could, what would happen with America, the rich potential of America. He got more and more fed up with the fact that um, American manufacturers were being restrained and America was being treated as a source of natural resources for Britain. Uh, so basically the, the resources, the, the timber and the minerals would go over to Britain and Britain would manufacture them and send them back again and they weren't allowed to do their own manufacturing. And Franklin, uh, one of his, he had some, lots of sort of wonderful experiments, a lot of which worked, quite a lot didn't work. And quite a lot were sort of quite strange. I mean, I love the idea. He created this sort of four-hour clock, actually, when he was, he was here in London. And the idea was that you'd have a, a clock, and all it had would have four sort of um, quarters on it. 
and uh, the hours would be 4, 8 and 12. And you could actually have the, the minutes between 1 and 60. Um, and that um, you'd be able to tell the time. Probably not too good if you'd had a bit too much to drink and you woke up in the middle of the night and you weren't quite sure what the time was. But never mind. Uh, another um, sort of fancy he had was, again, Madeira comes into it. Um, they'd opened up a bottle of Madeira and they saw a couple of wet flies and they came under the sort of false impression that these flies had actually been preserved in the Madeira uh, and that had been resuscitated when, when it had been opened and had um, lived again. So he thought, now this is what a fantastic idea. Um, why don't um, I and a whole load of my chance, when we die, let's get us um, pickled in Madeira and then in a hundred years they can open up the barrel and we can see the wonder that will be America. And let's face it, you know, he was spot on about the population growth and he was pretty much spot on about, uh, you know, the difference between America from when he died in, uh, in 1790 and 1890, by which stage it was the richest country in the world. We've come up a floor, we're um, a bit high up in Benjamin Franklin's house and we're looking at a very, very unusual looking object that's got a wheel at one end and what looks like a very sort of tall stash of drinking glasses, um, but I imagine that's not what it is. Um, so, George, can you explain what exactly is this object? Well, we can say it's, it's actually drinking glasses on their side with a hole in the bottom with a pole through and a wheel at one end. So, But the drinking glasses is, is right in a sense because that was the inspiration for this musical instrument uh, created by Benjamin Franklin in this very place, Benjamin Franklin House in Craven Street in London. And it is the glass harmonica, not harmonica, the glass harmonica. And um, where the glass, the, the drinking glasses come in is that there was a man called Pockridge or Puckeridge. He was an Irish sort of adventurer who came up with the idea of filling up glasses of different sizes and, and thickness with varying amounts of water to create a musical instrument which he would play. Now, Franklin saw this one day and he thought, well, this is actually rather good, but I can, I can do better than that because that was the nature of Franklin and it was the nature of science in the 18th century, that you would see something and then you'd like to experiment and you would see if you could improve it just for fun. And he created this, this musical instrument. And do you know what? It caught on. Beethoven, Mozart... They produce pieces um, uh, for, the, for the harmonica and it's um, also background music in the Harry Potter films because it has this sort of eerie, eerie sound to it. In fact, people said when it originally came out that the sound was so eerie that it would drive people mad. It would drive the people playing it mad. That may actually have been something to do with the fact that you then had to lick your fingers uh, to put on the glass, and the glass would actually have lead in it. So what they actually had was lead poisoning, poor chaps. And uh, that was the problem for the madness. I don't think it was the sound at all. But but shall we have a shall we have a bit of a listen? Yes, well, hopefully we won't drive our listeners mad, but um, George, you've promised you'll play us, maybe not a tune, but play a few notes on uh, this replica of Franklin's harmonica. I'm not very musical, but uh, we'll see what we can do.
Okay, so we've now come down into the basement of Benjamin Franklin House, and in front of me is a glass cabinet full of bones. Um, would I be right to say, George, that these are not the remains of Benjamin Franklin? These are not the remains of Benjamin Franklin. The remains of um, Benjamin Franklin are in Christ Church Burial Ground in Philadelphia. These are, though, human bones. The daughter of Mrs. Stevenson, his landlady, Polly, married an anatomist called William Hewson. And Hewson had his anatomy theatre here and um, experimented, obviously, on, on bodies. Actually, it's a very, very sad story because um, Hewson really was a great anatomist of the time. He, like Franklin, won the, won the Copley Medal. Uh, the Nobel um, Prize of the time, and was a fellow of the Royal Society. Um, but one day in 1774, when Franklin was, was here, in fact, actually, what had happened, Polly and Hewson came to live in this house in 1772, and Franklin and Mrs. Stevenson moved to another house across the street. But um, Franklin still used this house for, for entertaining and, and, for, and for meeting. Anyway, one, one day in 1774... Uh, Hewson's knife slipped, he got septicemia, and he died. Oh. And uh, so it was a very, very great talent, was cut very short, unfortunately. Now, the bones were found uh, when Benjamin Franklin House uh, was, um, when the floor here was excavated, uh, part of when the, the house was actually saved... This is the only house um, in which already home in which Benjamin Franklin lived, which still survives in the entire world, both sides of the Atlantic. And um, in 1980, it was in a completely dilapidated state. Uh, it was saved, thank goodness, because various heritage organisations realised that you know it was it was due for to be either gutted or developed in, in quotes. And they stepped in, but it wasn't really till the, the late 1990s that a, a organising management group uh, under the direction of uh, Marcio Balisciano, who is still the director here to this day, and Sir Bob and Lady Reed really got um, things moving. They got all kinds of heritage um, organisations involved, English Heritage, the Heritage Lottery Fund, and lots of others and they turned over time, it was from the 1990s, uh, late 1990s till 2006, they, they turned this place into the Benjamin Franklin Museum. And it opened on the 17th of January 2006, which was the tercentenary of Franklin's birth. That was George Goodwin on location at the Benjamin Franklin House in London. The house is open to visitors all year round from Wednesday to Sunday. Booking tickets in advance is recommended and you can do so at benjaminfranklinhouse.org where you can also find out plenty of information about the building and its famous occupant. George's book, Benjamin Franklin in London, The British Life of America's Founding Father, is out now in the UK, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. In the US, it will be published on the 29th of February by Yale University Press. And Benjamin Franklin in London, 
has been selected by BBC Radio 4 as their next book of the week. If you're in the UK, you'll be able to hear episodes of that beginning on Monday the 15th of February at 9.45am. You can also read an article by George about Benjamin Franklin in the February edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on Henry IV, the Battle of Verdun, King Arthur, Dad's Army and a whole lot more. You can get hold of our February edition in all good news agents and our many digital formats. One of the regular sections within the magazine is our First World War, which charts the progress of that conflict a hundred years ago through the words of those who lived and fought through it. We've also been including accompanying audio clips within the podcast, and this month we've come to February 1916. So here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is Dolly Shepard recalling her experiences driving a munitions lorry for the War Office. I joined the munitions for driving munitions. And then, it was then, that I carried on... uh, That was WD, you know, the War Office, for um, driving munitions. I used to drive a a tonne-and-a-half lorry, and I used to take steel rods and nose cap forgings and all kinds of things to the various factories, Wilkinson's Sword Factory and... And then one day I had to go to the Mint. Oh, dear. I had to take some stuff into the Mint. And then they loaded me up with a a load of, I thought, I didn't know what it was. Anyhow, they loaded me up, just loaded me up like that. And I had to drive to the docks. And they unloaded at the docks and all that. After after they'd done it, they said, do you know what what you've been carrying? I said, no, you've been carrying gold ignots. They were all painted white, you see, and I just thought it was something to do with munitions. And I had that. And nobody with me. (laughs) What sort of lorry was it? It was a Renault. Yes, R-E-N-O-T, one of the early ones, and it was gravity-fed and... Um, um, oil drip feed, what you call oil drip feed. See, that meant that it was a little, it was a long glass thing. You could see how the various parts were automatically, as you went along, were being oiled. And if one part failed, you had to keep on wriggling it with your finger. Now, where was this glass? On the dashboard. You see, in gravity fed. And one day I had a, um, a whole load of uh, steel rods, or brass rods, I think they were, and I was going up a hill, and, of course, I'd, I hadn't run out of petrol, but I hadn't got enough petrol in it. Of course, being gravity-fed, um, I had to back, turn round and back up the hill. It must have looked silly, but I couldn't help it. I had to do it before I got some more petrol. That was gravity fed. Did you have difficulty getting supplies of petrol during the war? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, no, we had plenty of petrol. Oh, plenty. How had you learned to drive? Oh, I drove years before. Oh, yes, I always... I drove 
oh, what, in 19... Oh, I don't know how many years before the war. So I really knew all about driving. I could take it straight on, you see. Mind you, I knew what I... I, I could drive and I could fiddle around with things, but I didn't know what I was... If you ask me what I was driving, you know, what, what happened, I knew about this oil feed and I knew about the, the petrol. But, I mean, I didn't know any of the others. So that when... After we'd done all our donkey work in there, and then the army saw that we had made good, then they suddenly thought they would start the WACs, you see, the, the uh, Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. That was Dolly Shepherd. Keep up with our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Renaissance and the First World War Battle of Verdun. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.